Um, for the scripture reading, we'll be in uh, the first six verses of John 14, um, 14, 1 through 6. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to a place, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Amen. <clears throat> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful this morning for salvation that you provided through your Son, your only begotten Son, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the only way of salvation, the only one in whom salvation is found, the only one who is truly uh, of you, of one essence with you. Father, Lord, as we consider these truths this morning from your word, which uh, on one level seem to be so simple, Lord, help us uh, to truly understand, to truly understand the, the depth of what you've done here in our behalf, the true nature and meaning of the salvation that you've provided, the, true, the truth about the identity of Jesus of Nazareth. And Lord, may all of these things, as, as our understanding grows, may all of these things create in us a greater thankfulness to you, greater desire to know you better, greater desire to do your will, greater compassion for those who are yet in this world without you and perishing greater motivation to reach out to them in love. Father, use all of these things, we pray, to bring glory and honor and praise to Your name and to work sanctification within us, within Your people. We thank You for it and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Amen. Well, it's a blessing to be back this morning. Let me just say first that I, I really appreciate Brother Carl and, and uh, you know, for filling in and, and uh, for Miss Carolyn for putting up with him. I mean, you know, we, we all appreciate Miss Carolyn. <laughs> but no, Brother Carl, I do greatly appreciate it. And uh, we had a good time taking a little, little R&R, and I guess you could call it that. We did a lot of hiking and biking, and, and uh, so, but it was, you know, it was a good kind of work. And, uh, you know, it's a funny feeling when you, when you visit a church, especially for the first time, you, you go and you visit a church that you've, uh, you've wanted to visit, and the, the pastor resigns while you're there. That's kind of, kind of strange. I, you know, hopefully it had nothing to do with us attending, but uh, we, uh, last Sunday we, um, 
worshiped with the brothers and sisters at um, First Presbyterian Church over in Jackson, Mississippi. Um, Ligon Duncan, who has been the pastor there for 17 years, is uh, uh, not somebody that I know personally at all, but, I, but just somebody that I've, you know, I've read. He, he, he's an author, he's a you know, speaker, and, and of course a pastor, and, and, uh, and an educator. And so I, it's just somebody that I've, I've kept up with a little bit, and, and we had wanted to visit uh, his church, <laughs> and we did. And we had a good time, but, uh, but yeah, that was interesting um, when he announced his resignation. But um, it was for good, good things, not, for, not because of bad things. He was just uh, taking over the seminary there in Jackson, uh, Reformed Theological Seminary. And so uh, uh, he's scheduled to do that at the first of the year. But it was a, a blessed time in the woods and, and uh, worshiping with the folks in Jackson, visiting there. But it's good, good to be back here this morning. It's good to see, um, good to see everybody. Um, we're going to pick up our study this morning in uh, John 14. This is where we left off uh, last time. Uh, so we're actually uh, in verse one. We're beginning John 14, and I'm I'm not um, looking to get very far this morning as far as covering the chapter. We're just going to try to cover what Zach just read a moment ago, and this is just a, a real basic, in one sense, um, description, I would say, of of uh, salvation, of what Jesus came to do, and uh, yet extremely profound, and and all that is uh, said in these few verses. I, there's no way if I tried to co- cover it exhaustively that, uh, that I could, I, no matter how much time we had, but, uh, but uh, we, we, we want to ask the Lord to uh, definitely increase our understanding here and grant us a greater appreciation for what He's done for us by His grace. It's good, it's good to be saved and it's good to, to know the truth and to know the Lord who is truth. Now these are going to be some, like I said, in one sense, very simple things we're covering this morning. Uh, I do think there's a, uh, just kind of a sum here of what salvation is in these few verses and uh, the nature of it um, and Jesus, what, what He's come to do, what He has done now as we look back, what He's accomplished. And so that's, that's, what, we're going to, that's what we're going to consider. I, I do, even, even having said that, you know, mentioning the... the simplicity of it in one sense. I do think there are a lot of misunderstandings, and I, one reason I, I think that is because I, I hear them all the time, um, you, comments people make about these verses and others as well that have to do with salvation and, and what it uh, is about ultimately, what it looks like, what to expect. And uh, so while Jesus doesn't go into a great deal of detail here, I think he gives us some very significant things um, that if, if we think about and take seriously, kind of help us uh, in the way that we think about um, our redemption. So let's just go back through these verses here, uh, again, beginning in verse 14. Let me just kind of set the context here. This is what we refer to as the Last Supper. So this is Jesus' last discourse um, before He is arrested and ultimately crucified. Now, Verse 1, and everybody will be familiar with this verse, no doubt, at least, the, at least the first phrase, let not your hearts be troubled. What words of comfort coming straight from the Lord? Um, and it's good. This is one of those passages, I think, 
you know, a lot of times it's not good to, obviously, to, to, to yank things out of context and, and misuse them. But there's a principle here that I think can be widely used. In other words, there's just great comfort uh, in hearing from the Lord and in hearing um, who He is and what He's about. What He's here, He's talking to the disciples about what He's about to accomplish. We're looking back, learning about what He has accomplished in our behalf. And so this ought to be, even though we're not with Him on this night that He's going to be arrested and we haven't, just heard personally for the first time the words that He's just spoken to them, this ought to nevertheless bring great comfort to our souls as well. Now, as far as context, let's just think for a moment about what has just taken place. And you don't have to go far. You just back up a few verses and into verse 13, and Jesus says to them, as they are reclining at table, uh, partaking of the Last Supper, uh, the, the Passover meal. He says to them, Where I'm going, you cannot follow me now. That's in verse 36. Where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Now that all sounds very confusing to them. Uh, it's, a, it's a somewhat troubling saying. This is why they're troubled in verse 1 of 14. And yet at the same time, it's a, it's, a, it's a promise of great hope because although he says, where I'm going, you cannot follow, he goes on to say, but you will follow afterward. Now again, not understanding what he's talking about, they don't see the hope in it, but looking back, we, we can. In verse 37, Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Now, Jesus has, in fact, explicitly stated several times already pretty much exactly what's going to play out. It's going to be handed over to the Gentiles. He's going to be crucified, die the third day, rise again. But we know, because we've been told up to this point, that's all just foggy and muddy to them. They're not understanding what that's all about. That is so foreign to them and their concept of, of who the Messiah is and what the Messiah will do, that they can't process it. When he talks about being betrayed, when he talks about being um, persecuted, when he talks about suffering, dying, none of that makes sense to them. So, so they don't, you know, we look back on it and we understand it. Peter's not understanding that. And so he says, Lord, why can I not follow you now. I will lay down my life for you, which by the way is an indication that he does understand at least uh, that something bad's about to happen. He, evidently he gets, gets it to some extent that Jesus is going to suffer and die. And Peter's basically saying, I'm willing to die with you. I will lay down my life for you. A noble statement. Um, and, and true in one sense and yet not another. Because I say true in one sense, because when they come to arrest Jesus, Peter is the one who will draw his sword. He's ready to fight. He's ready to go down with the Lord. And he takes off the ear of one of the servants of the high priest. He's ready to do battle. He's ready to fight if necessary for his Lord. But that's not the kind of laying down of the life that Jesus is looking for. 
And the kind that he is looking for, self-denial, abandonment of our own personal desires, abandonment of all the idolatries that we cling to, that kind of laying down of the life, Peter's not, not ready for. So it's a noble statement, but not altogether true. In verse 38, Jesus says, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. And we're going to find out, of course, that that, exactly, that is exactly what is, uh, is going to happen. That's exactly how it plays out. So even while Peter's not afraid of a fight, once, once it's clear that a turn has been made and things aren't going the way that he wants them to and Jesus is not you know, about to be, become king and ruler and so forth, then Peter's ready to back off and deny the Lord. And so this is very troubling, needless to say. Peter said, I'll lay down my life for you, and Jesus essentially says, no, you won't. No, you won't. As a matter of fact, before the cock crows tonight, you're going to deny me three times. Now, it's, it's immediately after that that Jesus says, not only to Peter, but to all the disciples gathered, let not your hearts be troubled. What a, what a statement to come from the Lord who, just, who has just told Peter, you're going to deny me. And yet, in the, in the face of that, in the face of Peter's denial, in the face of Judas' uh, betrayal, in the face of the arrest of the Gentiles and the hostility of the Jews and the persecution and the crucifixion, Jesus, knowing He is facing all of that, Instead of seeking comfort from them, he's giving comfort to them. Knowing, in fact, that to some degree they're involved. And yet he says, let not your heart be troubled. These things are going to play out. I know it's troubling. And by the, word, by the way, the, the, the word trouble there, um, it's, it's the same word that we saw a few chapters back when the, Jesus healed the invalid by the pool of Bethesda, and, and he talked to Jesus about the troubling of the waters at the pool of Bethesda. It, it's, it means to agitate or to stir up. It's the same word that Jesus uses about his own soul when he speaks of himself being greatly troubled. So he's saying, let not your heart be, be agitated or stirred up in a, in a, in a bad way. That's the, the sense there. You think about anxiety and what it, what it does to you. And Jesus is saying, don't, don't be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Me. Now, interestingly here, and I'm just kind of uh, put this out to you for consideration um, these, these words here, uh, believe in God, believe also in me, can be taken as imperative. In other words, a command. Believe in God. Believe also in me. 
or they can be taken as indicative. Grammatically, it can go either way in the Greek. So if it's indicative, in other words, he would just be making a statement. You believe in God. You also believe in me. So essentially you've got, and that's why you'll, you'll see a little variation if you look at different translations, because essentially you've got four possibilities there. They're both indicative. Possibility number one, Jesus is just saying, you believe in God and you believe also in me. Or, number two, they're, they're both imperative. He's giving a command, you believe in God, or, or believe in God rather, believe in me also. Or maybe the first one is imperative. Believe in God. And the second one is indicative. You believe in me. That one probably wouldn't make a lot of sense. Or the fourth option, the first one is indicative. And I believe this is the way uh, basically the King James translates it. You believe in God. And the second one is imperative. Believe also in me. I think probably they're both intended as imperatives. Because frankly, their, their faith hasn't been real strong. And, and we can look at other passages, for example, when Jesus um, causes the fig tree to wither, and they ask Him about it. They just marvel that just exactly what Jesus said would happen, happens. He curses the tree and it just withers up. And they marvel at that, and Jesus says, Have faith in God. Have faith in God. So, so it wouldn't be any surprise that, that he would say uh, something similar here. So I think they're both imperatives. They are troubled. Their, their souls are agitated because things aren't working out the way that they anticipated. Things aren't going according to their expectations. They had a much different outcome in view. You know, Jesus is the Messiah. Over time, more and more people are going to come to realize that, come to follow Him. And eventually, we're going to have this big movement. And we're going to overthrow our oppressors, the Roman government. And Jesus is going to sit on the throne of David and... and Israel's going to once again be established as a sovereign kingdom. I mean, this is the concept they had. The messianic kingdom, is, in their mind, is, a, is, is an earthly kingdom, like, like, pretty much like any other earthly kingdom, except that it's ordained of God. God's own special kingdom. They, they didn't envision a suffering Messiah. They didn't envision one who would be killed by the Romans. They're looking for something just the opposite. They didn't envision that they too would suffer. That they would be ostracized. So things aren't playing out the way they expected. And here's the comfort that Jesus gives. He says, Believe in God. Believe in God and believe also in Me. The word for faith there or, or believe is the idea of trust. Trust God. I mean, their, their, world, is, their world is crumbling. It's, it's crashing in. 
And Jesus' response, there's going to be more, but at least part of it right now, Jesus' response is, trust God. Trust God and trust me. They didn't have Romans 8.28 yet, you know. All things work together for good to those who are who love God and are the called according to His purpose. They, they didn't, that wasn't penned yet. But that's essentially what Jesus is communicating here. Just trust God. Trust God and trust me. We're not, we're not, doing, we're not working things out like you expected, but we're working things out the right way. We're working things out for the best. And then he goes on to expound a little more, and I would say to graciously <laughs> expound, because he doesn't have to say these things that he's saying. These are words of, of grace, um, ministering, ministering hope and comfort. Believe in God, believe also in me. Verse 2, in my Father's house are many rooms. Now, I want to just, the rest of it, I kind of want to break down into just basically three parts here. As I said, just kind of a, a basic view of salvation. And, and so the, the first one is just the, the nature of salvation. The nature of salvation. In my Father's house are many rooms. What is Jesus saying? Well, he's not saying mansions. <laughs> okay, one one thing he's he's not he's not talking about everybody's going to have their own mansion. The word here means literally a, a dwelling place or an abode. In fact, think of it in terms of the analogy he uses. In my Father's house, of course there he's referring to God, the Father. In my Father's house are many rooms. In my Father's what? House. See, there's, there's the analogy. House or household. In my Father's household are many dwelling places. Salvation, and you've heard me say this often, but salvation is reconciliation to God. Now, the, it's, a, it's a fact, and it's, it's a glorious fact, that we are saved from the wrath of God. <laughs> That's a glorious fact. We're, we're saved. All, all who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, all who are born again, are saved, spared from eternal damnation. Eternal Hell. But the essence of that, really, is separation from God. So in other words, if you, if you just kind of boil it down, to, to be lost or to perish eternally is to be eternally separated from God. Which I, which I think if you, if, you, if, you, you know, if we meditated on that, a little bit. Think about it. That could be nothing but torment of the worst kind. Removed from every 
bit of grace and goodness for eternity. So that it, it is no longer part of your experience. Now, no, nobody, no living person has ever experienced that. And we, we think about the lost or you know, ourselves in our pre-Christian state when we were lost in terms of being ungodly, as correctly so, of course. But in this world, even the ungodly experience God's grace in some measure. He makes His reign to fall on the just and the unjust. Right? The sun shines on the just and the unjust. Everybody experiences what we have come to call um, general grace. But eternal damnation, hell, would be to be separated from that forever. Now, I say all that just to kind of help highlight what Jesus is saying here. Eternal salvation, then, is to be in God's presence forever. (laughs) That's, That's what salvation is. To be put in right relationship with God so that we can live with Him in His presence, both now and forever. Now, we don't know the fullness of it. We we live in His presence now. But it's by faith. we We don't see, as it were, except through faith. But then we'll see face to face rather than as through a glass, darkly. Then we'll know as we're known. Then we'll see Him as He is. So we dwell in His presence now and then when we leave this world, we have that experience in its fullness. So, so now, now there's this paradox we often speak of. We, 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 are, we know the Lord. We love the Lord, we, have, we, we walk with Him, we follow Him, we are in His presence, and yet at the same time, we deal with sin, don't we, on a daily basis. Sin within and sin without, the corruption of the world. Yet what Jesus is looking forward to here is an existence where the experience of sin is removed and we know nothing but the glory of God's presence throughout all eternity. That's that's the room. That's the abode. That's the dwelling place that he's talking about. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. He's reminding them that in the end, you're going to dwell in the presence of God forever. Forever. That's the nature of salvation. It's not, it's not about an eternal vacation, you know, just getting to a nicer place where we can finally relax. It's about being with the Lord. Being in His presence forever. Knowing Him as He is. Seeing Him as He is and being made like Him. In my Father's house are many rooms. 
If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Now, there, here's another place where grammatically it can be translated in different ways. So again, you see uh, differences in, in the different translations. And, and the ESV here puts it in the form of a question. Again, that's grammatically correct. Um, the, uh, if you're looking at maybe the King James, that's, that's also grammatically correct, where it's just a statement. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. And then there's a period, and I go to prepare a place for you. Now what I want to focus in on here is that statement, I go to prepare a place for you. Here's, here's the means of salvation. In my Father's house are many rooms. There's a salvation. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? I go to prepare a place for you. Now again, he's reminding them because this is encouragement for them. This is great hope that he's communicating to them. But now, that raises a question, doesn't it? Where is he going? I go, I go, and I'm just, I'll just, I'm used to the statement form, so I'll just put it in the statement form like King James does. I go to prepare a place for you. Okay, where's he going? And he's already told him, I'm going away. You can't go now. You'll follow after. Where is he going? To the cross. To the cross. I think that's exactly what he means. Look, I'm going, and you can't go. Oh, you'll, you'll come afterward. Because the ultimate destination is eternity with God. And He's promising them, you're going to be where I am, where I end up. But, but the path that I'm taking, you can't go. You can't go because you can't do it. I listened to a guy speak Tuesday night. They asked us to come uh, do music for a meeting over at um, First Baptist Houghton. Tuesday night, they had a pilot there who had, um, he was supposed to be, quote-unquote, on, on the, on the uh, piloting the plane, the first plane that went into the first tower on 9-11-2001. Um, the way he explained it was that when, when they have, uh, when, when they're available, they would, they would go online into the American Airlines. He worked for American Airlines. They would go online into the American Airlines system, and they would, they would have a you know, list of flights would come up, and you choose what you want to take. So he chose that one. He was in uh, Boston, I believe it was, where that flight originated, and, and he chose that, that flight, was, which was supposed to be going to the West Coast. Um, and he, he signed in. Now, he said, when you do that, there's a 30-minute there's a window of opportunity. Somebody else can take it away from you. You know, if they, if they sign in and they want it, th th that can happen. And he you know, said it happens often. So if that doesn't happen, he said, you get a call a few minutes later from the airline saying, okay, we've got you, we're giving you a confirmation. You've got this flight. If it does happen, in other words, if somebody winds up taking it away from you, he said, um, then I get a paid day off because because I, you know, I volunteered to take the flight, and if it gets taken away from me, they still pay me, but I've got the day off. Well, he thought, you know, I mean, well, that is what happened. He said, you know, that's what happened. He never got the call of confirmation, so he told his wife, you know, well, uh, you know, it looks like I'm not flying out tomorrow. And, uh, of course, the other man that did take the flight <coughs> wound up being murdered 
and, and the plane was flown into the, to the tower in New York. Now, this guy said, and this is the way the guy used the story, the pilot, Tuesday night. This is the way he used the story. He said, I was qualified to fly that plane. To this day, I'm qualified, he said, to fly that plane. And that could have been me instead of him. And he said, but, you know, after all of it, he said, God, God used that to teach me about substitutionary atonement. And he said, that guy essentially died for me. He died in my seat. He said, and yet, in one sense he died for me, but, but he didn't take away my sin. And he said, I was qualified to be there. I could have done it. I could have flown that plane, and I could have been the one that died. He said, but on the other hand, Jesus died for me and did take away my sin doing something that I'm not qualified to do. Jesus went to the cross. And he said, I'm not qualified to go to the cross and pay for my sins. I think that's what Jesus has in view here. He says, I go. In other words, I'm going to the cross. I'm going to suffer at the hands of sinners, at the hands of the Jews and the Gentiles. I'm going to the cross to prepare a place for you. He's not in heaven building a mansion. That's, that's not how He prepares our place. He prepares our dwelling place with God. We can say, we can put it in the past tense now. He prepared our dwelling place with God by going to Calvary's cross. He died for us at Calvary. That's the means that God uses to save us, to bring us into right relationship with Himself, to bring us into fellowship with Himself. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, or would I have told you, that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to Myself that where I am, you may be also. That's what he was telling, telling them earlier. You can't go now, but you'll come afterward. After I've accomplished your salvation, after I've done what I have to do, then, when I return to the glory that I had with the Father before the world was, afterward, then, you will join me there. You might call that the promise of salvation, right? We know that our final destiny is to be with Him. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We have Jesus' Word. He's gone to the cross to prepare a place for us, and the place is a dwelling place in the presence of God. Now one last point. And I'm going to call the person of salvation. Jesus says in verse 4, and you know the way to where I'm going. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Because they've already, we've already seen that they're confused by all this. They don't understand. And yet Jesus says, I'm going. I'm going to prepare a place for you so that where I am you may be also. And you know the way. You know the way to where I'm going. 
Well, they're confused about that. And Thomas speaks up in verse 5 and says, Lord, we do not know where You are going. How can we know the way? He's a logical type guy. If I don't know where I'm going, how in the world can I know how to get there? Sometimes I know where I'm going and I don't know how to get there. Or maybe I know, you know, I'm just traveling, I don't know where I'm going. Maybe that's the problem. But, you know, we don't know where, so how, how can we know the way? And Jesus responds in verse 6, and these ought to be familiar words to all of us, right? What a statement. Another one of the I am statements. And it's not just one thing, it's three listed here. I am the way, he tells Thomas. Thomas says, Lord, we don't know the way. Jesus says, I am the way. You see why he already told them you know? Even though, even though they don't have a good handle on where they're going, they know Jesus. So he, that's, that's why he says, you know the way. Where I'm going, you know. And Thomas says, we don't know. And Jesus says, you do know, because I am the way. I am the way, the truth, and the the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is not... <laughs> and this is, what sets, this is what sets Him apart from everybody else, before and after. It's what sets Christianity. One of the things that... that sets Christianity apart from all other religions. He's not a, a man coming to, to, to pioneer a way and, and to you know, basically show the way. Here's the way. Follow me. He is the way. And you see the difference? And, you, and you, could, you, could use, you could say the same thing using different metaphors. I've heard people refer to Jesus as a light. You know, He's one of many lights that have come throughout human history. And no, the Bible teaches us that He is the light, right? He's the light. He's the light of the world. Similarly here, I am the way. Not just a way. I'm not just showing a way. I'm not simply, and this is what is, is so profound about it, I'm not simply showing you the way to God. Although in one sense He is, right? He, he is showing us the way to God. But, but not, not merely that. I'm not simply showing you the way to God. I am the way to God. That's what He's telling Thomas. That's one of the places I was referring to earlier, just like wrong ideas of heaven. There are wrong ideas about the way. And so you hear people say things like, Jesus is our ticket to heaven. I've seen that on church marquees. I like what John Piper says about that, just to make a point. When the show starts, people throw the ticket away. In other words, if, if Jesus is not the main event then your idea about salvation and heaven is all messed up. He's not a ticket to get there. He is salvation. He is the way. 
He's the way to God in the sense that He opens up access for us to fellowship with God. And why, why is it that He can do that? Because He is God in the flesh. It is because He is the truth that He can speak of Himself as being the way. He came, John tells us, back way back in chapter 1, verse 18. He came to narrate God to us. To explain God to us. You know why? Because, or how? Because He is the ultimate expression. The ultimate revelation. It's not, it's not the glory of God bouncing off of Him, reflecting like it would be hopefully with you and I. We, we, wanna, we want people to see the glory of God in us, but if that is so, it is because there's some reflection like the light of the sun off of the moon. Or you, you can go back and read about the great prophets of the Old Testament, and that's what you see. Basically a reflection of the glory of God in a man like Elijah or Jeremiah or Moses. Pick them out. Literally, in Moses' case, wasn't it? Glory of God reflecting off of his face, and it was so bright that they, they asked him to put, put a veil. And even as glorious and as bright as it was, it was a mere reflection. But Jesus is the glory of God. The glory of God emanates from Him as a source, as the source. I am the way, the truth. In other words, you want to know God. You want to know reality. You must know Jesus. You want to know the truth about salvation? Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's the truth of God. He's the life of God. In Him was life, John says back in chapter 1. In Him was life. And Jesus Himself said that just as the Father has life in Himself to give to whoever He wills, He said, I do too. So does the Son of Man. He's the truth of God and the life of God. Therefore, the only way. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father if not through Me. Now let me say one final thing there about this passage, about the Gospel. That is, in, in terms of exclusivity, that is about as clear as you can make it. I think in our country, in our culture, um, the pressure to back off of that truth is going to really increase over the next, I don't even know how to say it, the next weeks, maybe? <laughs> Certainly years? Decades? The reason I said I don't know how to say it, because it may, I may even be thinking too far off. I mean, things are happening fast. Whatever, at whatever pace, it's going to increase. 
pressure is already there. It's already strong. One of the, one of the primary things, all of these things that I've been talking about, salvation is to be in fellowship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. The means is the sacrifice of Christ made at Calvary's cross some 2,000 years ago. These are fundamental truths that we cannot, cannot move from. And so is that of the latter part of verse 6. There is one way and one way only of salvation. Jesus is clear. No one comes to the Father if not through me. So He rules out any other avenue. No one comes, no one is coming to the Father. And there, That's not to say that a lot of people don't claim it. A lot of people claim to be. A lot of people think they are. Every religion out there thinks they're coming to God. Jesus says, no one is coming to the Father if not through Me. He and He alone is the way, the truth, and the life. You see what He's saying? There's no life apart from Him. There, there's no absolute truth apart from Him. I mean, if you, if, if you reject Him, you've rejected objective reality. You've rejected truth. There's no way, there's no access to the Father without the sacrifice of Jesus Christ at Calvary. Without Jesus Christ. He is the person of salvation. Would you stand, please? Just as we... Uh, we're just going to close with a word of prayer and as we prepare to do that um, I just ask you to consider this morning if you're in fellowship with God and I can say the same thing another way that is are you trusting Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sins and for the salvation eternal salvation of your soul do you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior And I ask you to consider that as we pray and dismiss. And we're going to dismiss, but that doesn't mean we're in a hurry to get out of here. If you, in other words, if you need prayer, um, we've got time for that. Okay? We've got time for that. So let, let me know. Grab somebody here and let us know. But mainly, consider the state of your own soul. Be honest with yourself. Be honest with the Lord. Because ultimately, the main thing that you have to do is, is go to Him, right? Go to Him. Cry out to Him in prayer. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face 
shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. We're dismissed.